This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its six-year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about The Flash. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. All right, Jacob. So I wrote the review for The Flash. People can read that if they want to. I'll drop a link in the show notes if they want to get like my full sort of detailed thoughts. But I'm curious what you think. Uh, This is going to be an all Flash episode of today's show. And I'm curious what you thought about the movie. You saw it recently, right? Yeah, I saw uh, late last week, uh, Thursday night, you know, opening night. And I like it. I get The Flash is a good movie. I'm kind of, um, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised people don't like it. There's There's a lot there. It doesn't work. It's definitely messy in a lot of ways. But the confidence with which some people state that it's an absolute disaster beyond saving, uh, this makes me raise an eyebrow. I, I think that it's a movie that's entirely okay to not like for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I don't buy the narrative some people push that it is like an out and out, total, unfixable, unforgivable disaster, which I've seen more than one person with a reputable, you know, uh, place in my industry, uh, state. And I don't see that. I think it's a, I think it's a, uh, you know, a B, a B plus of a movie. If you want to break it down by grade, I enjoy yeah. myself. I think that there's an uh, there's an emotional ambition to the Flash that I think is admirable. I mean, does it have giant superhero fight scenes? Yes. Does it have all the, the nonsense we associate with the genre nowadays? Yes. But I do think that it's a movie. It's about one character trying to rectify one decision and dealing with his own mistakes in a way that I think feels 
more honest and emotional than a lot of films of this size often go for. And I like that ultimately it's not a story about universe ending stakes, but about one person grappling with grief and and solving mm-hmm. solving one small personal problem in the end. And to me, that alone makes The Flash so much more interesting than a lot of the movies being released, you know, of similar sizes. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I think I gave it like a seven or seven and a half out of 10. So it sounds like we're sort of on the same page in terms of like general uh, quality of the movie. Um, Obviously, like there's the entire Ezra Miller uh, fiasco, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast before. Um, I think, as you mentioned, you know, there are definitely like valid reasons for people to just completely opt out of this movie um, or, or not like it or not be able to get over that hump. But I was curious for you, watching you know having reported on a lot of that stuff and edited a bunch of pieces that talk about that stuff uh what did you make of ezra miller's performance in this film oh boy this is a problem I, we ran a piece about this on slash film over the weekend by one of our writers who put it better than i could have but i'll do my best part here which is ezra miller is extremely good in this movie there is a real movie star quality uh to miller uh the screen likes ezra miller uh they play, you know, more than one character. They play multiple versions of Barry Allen, and they're very funny. They're very emotional. Uh, they look great in the flash suit. It's the, the problem is that at what point are you allowed to, you know, separate art from artist? At what point are you allowed to say, okay, I can enjoy the performance while <clears throat> trying to ignore their real life crimes? It becomes a real problem, and people are allowed to, you know, approach it how they want to. They are allowed to say, hey, I'm not going to see The Flash because I'm not capable of doing this. Or I'm not going to see The Flash because I know I won't be able to, you know, uh, separate that. And, or like, I don't want to support this or whatever the reasoning may be. Yes. Right? And I don't know. I, I just, Man, Ben, and there's, there's no way to talk about this without sounding like a, a jerk in some ways. But it's like, I, I, I have not seen a Woody Allen movie since everything with, with him heated up. But for me to deny that... I haven't, uh, I've seen Annie Hall, you know, 25 times, you know, would be a lie. Mm-hmm. So like, I, it's, I, I, I try really hard to find my personal balance with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And the issue here is that, you know, it's a really good performance. And I really, really like Ezra Miller's take on Barry Allen. And they're the reason the movie works um, in a lot of ways. Cause so much of this movie feels like it was, thrown together uh by a thousand different cooks and uh, you know trying to share a kitchen mm-hmm. uh i think one consistent element is miller's choices as an actor and yeah. whew, i i feel weird praising them right now but it's that's what it is i think it's a terrific performance yeah yeah i mean look like i, I think you and i are in a, a strange position of like having to cover this stuff for work and we didn't really we're not really uh capable of like choosing to opt out, whereas a lot of other people would be. So I, I, I feel like because I'm not uh, in the position to be able to opt out, I'm just going to try to judge this, judge this as, as fairly as I can while like clearly and openly acknowledging all of the off-screen stuff. And I feel like that's kind of like the best that I can do. Um, and I, I actually went into this movie kind of with my arms crossed, Jacob, because I did not enjoy Ezra Miller's performance as The Flash in... Um, Justice League or Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, or you know the the other uh, I guess Snyderverse uh, movies that they appeared in before this, and so I was expecting because I just thought that they were annoying and the humor did not work for me in those other movies, and I was just like, oh god, a whole movie of this? I don't know about this, and I was like won over pretty quickly, um, and I think it it does have to do with it comes down to the sort of like 
I think the script is better, um, but also like the the charisma and that that star power actually is there. You know, th- despite like all of the the horrific off screen stuff, um, I, I just couldn't deny that like what I was seeing on that screen at that moment was actually like um, functioning and working working for me on a dramatic and and comedic level. So um, that that's about as best as I can say it, but. Um, uh, yeah, I don't really know where to go from there. I, I guess I, I, do I? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to run through a few scenes with you. We don't, we don't necessarily have to do like a full, um, you know, th- th- we are going to talk about spoilers for this movie. I just wanted to say that up top in case you haven't seen it yet. Um, but I wanted to run through a few specific scenes and ask you like what you thought about how they worked. Um, one scene that I've been seeing get a lot of, uh, discussion about is the opening, uh, action sequence where Flash saves all of the falling babies in slow motion. Um, I think a lot of parents and I don't know, I haven't, I I didn't really spend a ton of time online this weekend, but I I saw like several parents be like, this is unconscionable that this, (laughs) that this, uh, is, is a scene in a, a mainstream movie, like this idea of, these um, infants being put in, in peril um, just really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, I, I'm not a parent. I don't know if that really, if that makes a difference, if there, if it's, as, it's probably not as clean as uh, you know, just drawing a dividing line between if you have a parent, you feel this, or, you know, if you're a parent, you feel this way. And if not, you feel this other way, but I, I that scene did not rub me the wrong way, Jacob. I, I really, and maybe I should feel bad about this, but I really enjoyed myself in that opening uh, scene. I thought it was like, pretty well done and i think my favorite slow motion superhero movie scene uh you know besting all of the uh, quicksilver stuff in the x-men movies but uh, i'm curious where that ranks for you and what you thought about that yeah i don't want to say anybody who is upset by the scene is wrong but um the scene is kind of great it's the best scene in the movie and unfortunately from an action pov it means the movie peaks you know in its first 15 minutes yeah um but yeah it's Look, I feel like if you have the Flash, a character who is capable of doing impossible things, he can move, run the speed of light or, or whatever it is. Uh, it, it legitimately makes the Flash, you know, as powerful as a Superman in a lot of ways. It, it's 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 a superpower that is impossible to write compelling things for unless you really go out of your way to create challenges. And what Andy Muschietti and uh, and and everybody else involved in the sequence have, has done is create a scenario so impossibly cartoonishly nightmarish that the only way to remotely solve this issue is the Flash's abilities. Wonder Woman couldn't couldn't save this situation. Batman couldn't do it. Aquaman couldn't do it. Only the Flash could save these babies from the Looney Tunes esque chaos surrounding them. And yep. that to me feels like okay. If, you, if you're going to make a Flash movie. Give the Flash threats that only the Flash can solve. And in fact, I'll go on a bit of a side tangent. This is why I actually really enjoyed the opening action scene in this movie, which is that while the Flash deals with slow motion falling babies that are surrounded by acid, broken glass, and also an adorable dog who's also falling with them, which is like, <laughs> like the dog completes the joke. Like if the joke, if it's not clear this is a joke by the time the babies are falling near acid, when the adorable like counselor dog also appears falling in slow motion, that see that seals that says okay yes, we're, this is not being treated as like a serious moment. This is being treated as a joke, as, as a Bugs Bunny gag. You're allowed to laugh. I think that to me mm-hmm. is the moment where it becomes clear. But this whole scene, uh, while the Flash deals with this, Batman's you know on the highways of Gotham pursuing bad guys in a van, trying to stop them from getting away with the uh, uh, with, with with the uh, uh, virus that they've stolen from the hospital, and uh, one woman comes in at the last second to uh, the, the assist as well. And 
it for me is the most balanced Justice League action scene we've seen in all of this DC universe, more so than any other cuts of Justice League, uh, more so than like anybody. I'm always rem- reminded of um, a not great run on Justice League comics. Uh, Jeff Johns did um, the Justice League when they rebooted DC Comics as a new 52, uh, you know, a little over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And not a great run. But I, I remember the first issue, first couple issues, which was a, meant to be like a flashback when Justice League first teamed up. I always appreciated how John's a veteran comic writer found unique use for every member of the Justice League. Uh, there's an alien invasion, um, uh, and it's in Metropolis, and everything's go, get, being destroyed, and everybody is being served differently. Every superhero on the team is doing something completely unique. And at one point, like Superman's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go completely distract the alien armies because I I can take that punishment." And Batman says, yeah, while you do that, I can stealthily sneak into the alien ship and, you know, deprogram it, hack it, you know, take down from the inside. It's the acknowledgement that each hero has their own specific purposes, and they all shouldn't just be standing in a circle punching things. I think that's my big issue with uh, Just League, both cuts of it, is that that final action scene really does come down to Aquaman doing the same thing as Superman, doing the same thing as Batman, doing the same thing as as everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think this opening scene establishes, oh, oh, holy shit, we, we could have had good Justice League movies? We could have had, like, Actually, with these characters like bounce off each other in really fun, satisfying ways, uh, we could have had like a a, a Batman, a, a Ben Affleck Batman movie where it utilized him really well because I think he's mm-hmm. utilized really well in his opening scenes. I don't know beyond the babies. I think this whole scene's a success. I think this whole sequence is, is evidence that you know that in an alternate universe, uh, this version of the Justice League worked, and it's kind of a shame that, that, that <laughs> in, their, in their last hurrah in a Flash movie is where it kind of comes together. Yeah, I wonder if there will be any other opportunities in like Aquaman: The Lost Kingdom, which I think is supposed to be the final film in the in the sort of um, DCEU before James Gunn's official uh, reboot. Will have any yeah like opportunities to sort of um, tap into that magic one more time, or if this really is like the sort of fond farewell to that whole uh, organ. I guess yeah, like uh, iteration of of the Justice League, but. Um, I was wondering what you thought about the uh, the alternate universe pop culture jokes and and I guess more broadly, like the humor at large in this movie, because I, I sort of felt like um, it was fairly hit or miss, but like there was a pretty decent ratio, I thought, especially compared to Ezra Miller's appearances in those previous films. But what did you make of that? Like spending a lot of time talking about how uh, Eric Stoltz and and, you know, Kevin Bacon and all those sort of like real life. Uh, situations sort of turning those on their ear because um, Barry Allen is now in this alternate universe a, a little ways into the film. Uh, I am pro a good alternate universe joke. Uh, I'm also pro a good Eric Stoltz and Martin McFly joke. Just one of those great, you know, pop culture what ifs. And I feel like it's it's one that's simultaneously great trivia. You know, every movie fan knows it, but also it's just vague enough to, you know, that maybe a more casual person um, will be like, what, what's that mean? And maybe look it up and find some, and find a great slash article on it or something. Um, <laughs> But it's, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think the jokes work. I, lo- I love me a good alternate universe. I love me a good Eric Stoltz joke. I think the humor largely works. I think Ezra Miller is very funny in this movie. And I say this to somebody who, who, like you, did not necessarily enjoy the performance in Justice League. I thought they were kind of grating. Whereas I think that they're um, a lot funnier here. I, I think that it helps that Barry Allen is presented uh, here is a bit more mature, a bit more together, and is allowed to bounce off the younger version of, of, of Barry, who is, you know, far more of this uh slacker type who mm-hmm. never who, who's never learned responsibility who gains superpowers without you know who, who earns great power without the great responsibility uh to borrow another superhero's phrase mm-hmm. um yeah i think i think that the, the movie movie's humor is i think more successful than a lot of superhero storytelling 
And I kind of like the um, Back to the Future, you know, esque hijinks of it all. A lot, a lot of hijinks in this movie, which was surprising. Andy Muschietti, you know, not a director known for hijinks. And I think that, uh, I think that there's clearly a lot of cooks, as I said before, operating on the universal stuff, operating on like what's make sure, you know, there's Michael Keaton's Batman, there's a Supergirl, there's this callback to Man of Steel. Uh, that's where the movie kind of gets lost a little bit. When it's kind of a straightforward time travel comedy, um, I'm very kind of on board with what it's selling more so than, you know, any of the big action scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned Michael Keaton. What did you think about his return as Batman in this film? Uh, he could have phoned it in and he didn't. I think Keaton kind of knows what's up. He knows people are excited about this and he shows the F up. Um, you know, is, is it ever believable that 64-year-old Michael Keaton in that suit is doing those action scenes? No, but it doesn't need to be. Um, <laughs> but I, I do enjoy that there's... Even though the movie does abandon a lot of the Tim Burtonisms that I think define, you know, this incarnation of Batman. In fact, there's an article on Slashville that has a quote from Muschietti where he, where he talks about how uh, there were, he kind of jokes that there were too many hats in the Tim Burton movies for him to bring that, that vision to life. Um, so even though I think we're, we're missing that little, you know, little bit of that you know back the back when Tim Burton was a good Burton edge, uh, mm-hmm. I do think that Michael Keaton. As a, you know, a Batman in his sixties is incredibly entertaining. Keaton uh, knows the assignment, uh, breaks out the Bat voice, uh, just wacky enough. In fact, my favorite about Keaton Batman stuff in the movie is not anytime he's in the suit. It's when he's essentially dressed as a uh, as a janitor and is uh, flying the inexplicable Bat kite uh, like a mad scientist to bring electricity down to give the Flash its powers back. Uh, so yeah, that like. Uh, I saw that. I said, okay, this is absolutely the Batman who would dress like that before doing Dr. Frankenstein experiments with his bat kite. So, you know, very much on board with, with the silliness of that and very much on board with Keaton being game for it all. Were you on board with, uh, I, th- I think her name is Sasha Kaye. And it might be how you pronounce her, her last name as uh, Supergirl. What did you think about her in the film? On board with Sasha Kaye, who does what she, what she can with the material less on board with Supergirl as she's portrayed in this movie, which is very one note, very much a plot device. Someone who pops in surprisingly late in the movie to, to serve a purpose, which is to punch it out a lot. Um, I would be happy to see Sacha Kaye give, give, be given another shot. You know, with the planned Supergirl movie, which is being based on a, a really celebrated Tom King written comic uh, called Supergirl woman of tomorrow that, uh, really presents a complicated, interesting, you know, nuanced Supergirl, as opposed to this one who's just kind of glowers and punches. So mm-hmm. pro Sasha Kaye, um, not pro Supergirl as seen in The Flash. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I just kind of felt like she, um, you know, it was it was cool to see her, and I'm glad that she sort of made her debut. I just wish that she had more room, and maybe in a different movie, to make her debut, because she just kind of... Um, I don't know, like uh, growled and screamed and yelled a lot. And I feel like Supergirl is a more interesting character than that. So I just feel like the the script didn't really do her many favors because it had, like you said, so much other stuff to juggle at the same time. Yeah, there was a quote that Michael Shannon had last week or maybe the week before that a lot of people read in bad faith when it was just Michael Shannon being honest, which was him saying he liked making Man of Steel more than The Flash because in Man of Steel, he gets to play an actual character in The Flash, he gets to play an action figure, more or less to paraphrase him. And he's right. Um, Zod in this movie is an action figure, and Supergirl is an action figure. Barry Allen is not. Batman is not. You know, um, but Supergirl and Zod absolutely are. So, yeah. um, props to Michael Shannon for you know being Michael Shannon and being honest, unlike everybody else in this goddamn industry. 
<laughs> All right, so um, after the break in, in a few minutes, we're gonna talk a little bit about the visual effects and uh, the cameos and things like that. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the, the conceptualiza uh, conceptualization and the, the execution of the so-called chrono bowl, um, where Barry basically runs so fast that he sort of bursts into this like nether world that is envisioned as almost like an amphitheater type of thing where like his memories scale up um you know as as almost like benches in a or, or rows in an amphitheater uh what did you think about the way that uh, muschietti and, and his um visual effects team uh decided to like actually incorporate that into this story conceptually like it's interesting execution which we'll talk about more when we get to the visual effects in a moment who boy um i the idea of this, the visuals of this, is very, very much feels like a, like a, a 1985 superhero comic, like something out of Crisis on Infinite Earth. It's very much a DC idea. Uh, Marvel would have found something more organic, something that that felt like um, something a bit more juicy or gooey, for lack of a better word. I don't know why I'm searching mm -hmm. juicy and gooey with Marvel, but the sort of rigid pantheon esque structure of a universe is very DC, uh, and I don't know why I feel like. <sighs> My Marvel's a forest, but DC is is a Greek is a Greek pantheon. I don't, I don't know why I'm, I don't yeah. know why I, I feel that in my head. I feel like my bones very deeply. Um, but yeah, I, I I wish that Andy Muschietti was not being put on the front lines to try to defend the look of a sequence that clearly the studio would not put pony up money to help him finish. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, okay, the the only other question, or I, I don't know if it's even a question, it's more of an observation um, that I had was at the very end of the movie, uh, Barry essentially, you know, I don't need to go beat by beat through there, but basically he sort of, um, he helps save his dad, right? His dad was in jail. And then he goes back in time and alters things just a little bit. He learns the lessons that he learned throughout the film. And his dad is... Um, is essentially freed from, from prison. Right. But his mom is still dead. Is that, is that correct? In the final, uh, version, it's been many months since I've seen the movie now, Jacob. So you'll have uh, to correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. In the final version of the film, Barry Allen's mom remains dead. Uh, he says goodbye to her in a grocery store, returns to his timeline where he's made a tiny alteration to save his dad. Um, but could not save his mother. Yeah. So, um, I, I was just like, you know, as a as a viewer uh, who is not necessarily like fully tapped into all of the Flash lore, I kind of felt like who killed Barry's mom was a, a fairly big loose end that the movie uh, just kind of left dangling there. And as we'll talk about in, in a few minutes, the box office is not necessarily looking like a sequel is going to be possible for this. So I'm not sure that this is ever going to actually be tied up. Um, but did that bother you at all? Or did, or did, did you even like clock that at all? Or are you more tapped into Flash lore than I am? And this was just kind of like part of the character's history in the same way that like Batman's parents dying in an alley is the same, you know, is is uh, part of that character's history. I'm definitely not a Flash expert. I, I, I couldn't tell you who killed the Flash's, you know, mom in comic book lore. But I, I can't say it, it didn't bother me because the Flash is ultimately a movie that's not about seeking justice, but about making peace with the past. And the movie had become, you know, Barry has Barry at the last minute finds his mom's murderer and brings him to justice. It would have, you know, maybe would have been more satisfying on like a very surface level. But I actually found Barry saying his final goodbye to his mother via time travel without her really knowing it and 
having to return to his own timeline with the knowledge that you that he didn't save the day but he's but he now has the ability to make peace with the fact that uh you can't rewrite the past you live with your own you live with your mistakes and you gotta build upon those rather than being able to go back and you know delete them and start over mm-hmm. uh you know i feel like delving into who killed my mom would have directly contradicted you know the emotional heft of that final scene yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense to me um, I just, I saw that, uh, there was the news going around earlier that, uh, Andy Muschietti was saying, uh, basically somebody asked him, you know, what would a sequel look like if you were able to make one? Like what, vi- what villain would you bring in next? And he said, uh, well, reverse flash is the elephant in the room, right? It, def- it feels like you can't make another movie without addressing the one that in all accounts is the murderer of Barry's mom. So it feels like the big villain, and then he goes on to say that he would also love to see the turtle, the slowest man on earth and a uh, gorilla grod. Um, but like I said, I, I don't really think that's going to happen. So yeah, it sounds, it sounds like reverse flash, which is a character that I'm like very vaguely familiar with, but probably people who watch like the CW version of, of the flash know all about. Uh, I've never saw any of that show. Um, that, that I just wanted to present that as kind of like a, a what if, or um, maybe even Muschietti saying that like, reverse flash is the version or is the character that killed Slash's mom in this movie in case other people had questions about that kind of like dangling uh, plot line there. Um, all right, let's take a quick break actually. And then we'll be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, Jacob. So this film did not perform well at the box office, and it kind of like underperformed to me in a shocking way. Um, I, I expected because Warner Brothers had spent so much money on this movie and because this film has been hyped in such a dramatic fashion for the past, I don't know, it seems like three months or something of just like, you know, Tom Cruise going out of his way to talk about how amazing this is. And then people like James Gunn and David Zaslav and obviously like folks with vested interest in the film saying, you know, this is one of the greatest superhero movies ever made and all this kind of stuff. It just felt like the studio was really um, putting a lot behind this movie. And it, I, I guess the, the uh, maybe Ryan will talk about this more uh, and, and put it into a larger box office context next time we have him on the show. Um, but since he's not here today, I, I just like very briefly wanted to mention that the film made $55 million domestically in its opening weekend which is uh, significantly significantly less than Black Adam, which made $67 million in its opening weekend. And Black it's a disaster. Like, this is yeah, a disaster for Warner Brothers. There's, there's no way around it. There's no way for me to sugarcoat this. This is not... Like, people people falsely say Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, is a box office bomb. No, it was a disappointment. The movie will ultimately make its money back. It's just it won't get a sequel. The Flash is a disaster. There's no way around it. 
Yeah, like Hannah Shaw Williams wrote in one of our articles uh, either yesterday or right over the weekend, like with a budget of over $200 million, this movie is unlikely to break even during its theatrical run, which is just like kind of astonishing to think about that so much um, you know, time and effort and resource and, and marketing spend and all of that went into this movie. And like audiences are just kind of not really showing up for this thing in a way that the studio really needed them to. Um, so I guess like, what is your reaction to the way that this movie has performed? Jacob, does this strike you as like, um, I, I don't know, how does this strike you? I'll just leave it at that. I guess I thought by default, we were looking at, you know, a $70 million opening. If you want to play box office, you know, guessing game, which, you know, we, we all do. Um, but the fact that this movie has been, you know, on and off in development and, or shooting for well over a decade the, the fact that the Flash as a character is not nearly as popular as a Batman or a Spider-Man. The fact that the Ezra Miller of it all just kind of hangs over like a cloud. The fact that it's attached to a, a universe nobody cares about. I mean, even when the movies are, even when modern DC movies are really, really good, like James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, um, people aren't showing up because the first Suicide Squad was a bad movie. Uh, people didn't show up um, to uh, Just League because Batman Superman was a bad movie. They didn't show for Black Adam because who gives a shit about Black Adam? It's just, um, <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's just a. Even though I like the movie, I think it's a good movie. I will go to bat for it as a, as a movie of mostly you know pretty decent quality. I, I do not blame audiences for looking at this thing and saying, "I'll just wait for the reboot." Like James Gunn and Warner Bros. made such a big loud deal about the DCU you know being reborn with a new Superman movie, Superman Legacy. And then very confusingly try to say, oh, but his other movies still matter too. Um, but no, they, they don't. Clearly they don't. <laughs> and uh, I'm really excited for it for a new DC universe. I'm ready for James Gunn to take his character seriously and reinvent it with a clean slate in a way that's going to that's gonna feel really, hopefully feel really, really good because I, I love these characters. Man, that's the thing. I love these characters. I love the DC characters. I love Superman. I love Batman. I don't love the Flash, but, but I like the Flash a lot. And I'm ready to love him. Um, but it's just, if I'm feeling that way about this, you know, how does a more casual person feel who doesn't feel inclined to like get perked up and excited whenever, you know, superheroes right. come up? I, I, I just feel like the, the, the Flash, if, 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 I think I'm going to paraphrase something I've heard a few people say now. This movie feels like it was made for four years ago. And, and of course it was because that's when yeah, this iteration was more or less, you know, a, about the shoot before the pandemic came along and disrupted it. And I feel like four years ago, this movie would have been a massive hit by default. And I think that in 2023, people are tired. And I think it's very, very telling that Spider-Verse and John Wick 4 are, you know, box office smashes. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of other ma major sequels that are just not especially good movies are bombing. And while I like The Flash as a movie, you know, I don't blame somebody for saying I saw the couple of DC. I saw Black Adam. I'll I'll wait for streaming. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I don't blame people for this, and I like the movie, but I don't blame anybody for looking at the marketing for this and saying, "Nah, I'll, nah, I'll wait for Superman Legacy. I'll I'll just, I'll, I'll just wait." Yeah, I, I wonder if like you think that this movie underperforming with as many resources as were spent on it um, actually does indicate that like the larger superhero. Uh, whatever you want to call it superhero industrial complex is actually in like a real genuine like stumble at this point if not like heading toward free fall because like quantumania performed terribly marvel studios has been um you know significantly dropping in in quality over the past few years maybe there, there are a couple blips here and there um and a lot of people have talked about superhero fatigue but that conversation honestly has been going on for 
10 plus years or something at this point. But I, I feel like with the, I, I don't know, am I overstating it and thinking that the Flash uh, performing so poorly in its opening weekend is actually like um, more evidence of that like audiences may be getting to the point where the superhero movie is no longer the dominant mainstream form of American blockbuster entertainment. Like, you know, every everything has cycles. Like Westerns used to be a huge deal and then cycled out. Like, are we approaching the cycling out point of superhero movies, Jacob? Super movies are not going to go away. I think this is the uh, big thing that I think people misunderstand in this conversation sometimes, which is super movies are not going to vanish overnight. There's not, not going to be one movie that ends it all or they stop making these things. They're going to make superhero movies until we all die. Marvel Studios will keep on making new shows and movies. I think the cadence will slow down. I think we'll start seeing fewer of them. I think that there'll be hopefully be a, a return to focus on better movies instead of more movies, better shows instead of more shows. Um, but I do think that is Spider-Verse a hit? Spider-Verse 2 a hit because it's a Spider-Man movie and a superhero movie? I'm not so sure. I think the fact that that first Spider-Verse movie was a modest success and the sequel was a massive success suggests that people at home watched it and said, oh, holy crap, this was a great movie. And got excited because it was a great movie. They were not excited uh, because it's a part of the MCU or because there was you know, some threads to be picked up or because it was set up in their thing. They were excited because it was a good movie. Uh, John Wick 4, you know, another smash hit, like the biggest John Wick movie. Like, yeah, it's three hours long. That movie should not have made the money it did. It, 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 it three hour long action, R rated action movie making them like half billion dollars worldwide. Incredible. That shouldn't happen. But, but John Wick is a series built, built on goodwill. Three good movies led to a fourth good movie and people responded. And I think that Marvel Studios has been the cart for the horse with, with all of phase four. Phase four, it was really shabby compared to. Uh, how tightly constructed the first three phases of Marvel movies were. And mm-hmm. the DC movies have been shabby from the start. I mean, audiences rejected Man of Steel pretty quickly. And Warner Bros. was in too deep by that point to, to pivot out of the Snyderverse. Uh, it's just that I've really gone off the rails here. Superhero movies are going to be around, but it's just going to be a matter of audiences want good stuff they want stuff that's good they don't want stuff they don't they don't want something because it's famous or a known name anymore they did for a yeah. long time i i you know audiences i think for a long time were very wise to like yeah these transformers movies aren't very good but i love transformers and i think the box office for the newest one suggests that people are like maybe i could use a break from transformers yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's well said um there's one uh filmmaking technique that i wanted to highlight here that i just thought was cool um we wrote an article about this so you can click on that to, to learn more about it. But essentially um, the way that uh, Andy Muschietti filmed the multiple Ezra Millers on the set, um, I, I thought was worth highlighting. So uh, Miller played whichever Barry had the most lines in a given scene. And then they brought in a stand-in or, or another actor to like a, a body double essentially to play the other, uh, the other version of Barry in the scene. And then uh Muschietti said in in this interview with uh, IndieWire's Toolkit podcast, he said, when the movie is finally edited and you know every single beat of the scene with the takes and everything, then you bring Ezra back to this thing called the volume, which is basically a room with 100 cameras. The result of that is that you end up with a digital asset of a performance that is photorealistic because it was captured by 100 cameras. They are interacting with a projection on the walls where these cameras are. And it comes from a camera that was on top of the head of the second actor the day of the shoot. So uh, Ezra Miller like goes into a a room that basically has the entire scene projected out, and then they are acting opposite 
themselves on that. It just kind of sounds nuts. And and uh, Muscadia said that this is the first time that this has ever been done. So while I have really little interest, Jacob, in ever like revisiting the movie of The Flash, I'm kind of curious to see the special features on the eventual home video release if they get one, because I want to see the behind the scenes of what that looks like. Have you ever heard of anything like that? I think like this. I mean, I know the volume because the volume that they filmed The Mandalorian on, they filmed Star Trek Stranger Worlds using it. Um, and between you and me, Ben, Stranger Worlds use the volume is much smarter and more consistent than Star, than Star Wars is. Shh. <laughs> I mean, the Mandalorian <laughs> is the one who touted it so loudly. Um, but yeah, I think this suggests that this, that this is not just, you know, uh, background shooting. Like, you know, Stranger Worlds uses it as set extensions. Mandalorian uses it you know, to build, you know, entire worlds for characters to exist in. And it's a really, really cool, unique tool and a really special way to, you know, to to replace or, you know, amplify or add another tool to toolkit in addition to a green screen. Uh, but it suggested just so much more that could be used of it. And even though, you know, I am not the kind of person who's like, it thinks the entire future is a volume. I think some people kind of thought that. Then they saw how Mandalorian Season 3 looked. Um, yeah. So, what's going to compare to Strange New World Season 2, which looks really, really good? Um, <laughs> I do think that as, as, as an increasingly, you know, uh, flexible tool in a filmmaker's toolkit, I'm very curious about where it goes next. So, yeah, I think this is really neat. Awesome. I love uh, Mandalorian catching strays on this podcast. Look, um, I, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll just say, I Mandalorian touted so loudly about its use of the volume and made such a big part of its, like, narrative that in season three's use of it looks so chintzy compared to seasons one and two. Meanwhile, Star Trek's over here using it really intelligently, blending it with real sets. And like my eye feels so much more effectively tricked by Star Trek using the volume to by Star Wars. And that uh, look, I'm kind of giddy about this. You know me, I'm, I'm a Trek guy more than a Wars guy. So it's, um, I find it very, very funny that Trek is kind of quietly hijacked Star Wars' biggest tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of things that looked chintzy, Jacob, now is when we should talk a little bit about the VFX and the, the cameos and the uh, the Chrono Bowl sort of um, universes colliding sequence at the end of The Flash. Before um, you start this, I have a, I have a question I think should, that I think should effectively kick this off. Yes. When you saw The Flash at CinemaCon, from what I understand, mm-hmm. Warner Bros. told you and the assembled press and the assembled theater owners who all were there for screening, the film was unfinished, the effects to be touched up. That it would all look better when upon release, and then they didn't change a damn thing. When I understand, am I correct? <laughs> well, I didn't. To be a hundred percent fair, I did not go out to the theater and rewatch the Flash uh, this past weekend. So I've only seen it in, in the CinemaCon circumstances. But that is basically what they said to us before they screened the film there in I think it was late April. Um, but from everything you know, I, I, I from everything that I've heard. Uh, it does not sound like they improved things almost at all. It doesn't sound like they touched things. And I think folks who actually were there uh, at CinemaCon did see the movie more recently and effectively said that that actually nothing changed. So um, yeah, that, that's the context we're going into here. Um, but I guess like before we talk about the, you know, actually how it looked, um, what did you think about that part of the movie, Jacob? The sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, the the... It's not quite the emotional climax of the movie, but it's kind of like the the superhero climax of the movie, if you will. So what did you think about that part of the film? I think so much of the last act is just lots and lots of visuals. I mean, that don't quite connect. I mean, the entire final battle with all the characters assembled is, is in a giant field. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, you, you're avoiding the Man of Steel problem of having tons of human casualties and collateral damage. Mm-hmm. But... It lends, it makes it really boring to watch. There's like no 
verticality to any of it. It's just a big open field. And that's even before you get to the, uh, the, the actual final confrontation in the Chrono Bowl itself with the Flash and several versions of himself, uh, which is just a nightmare to look at. I mean, everything is really ugly in the final third of this movie. Uh, and like Man of Steel's climax, I think, is a disaster from, from on a thematic and emotional storytelling level. It's a true disaster. But there, the sense of of space and time and verticality and levels uh, in the Metropolis in which Superman Zod fight is really impressive. And I don't know if somebody said it's cheaper to put him in a desert, um, <laughs> but it looks bad. Is in, in a flat open space like that? Yeah, the Flash can still run, but he can't do anything interesting. I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than the opening scene where he rescues the babies, uh, the Flash never has a, a great action scene because the Flash is never allowed to be the Flash. He's just, there's never a great action scene again. And that's before the emotional climax in the Chrono Bowl, which I don't know. I mean, I know I get to Mouchier's quote in a second about, you know, reasoning for how things look the way they do. But I feel like if you're going to go, if your goal was stylization for the Chrono Bowl to make it look abstract and unreal, they should have gone cubist. They should have gone full Picasso. They should have gone like truly hand-drawn animated rather than whatever the hell this looks like. I mean, the flash rotates between, you know, generic and hideous in its final act. And I'm just not on board. Yeah. So, you know, during all of the the cameos and all of that stuff, um, I think it was io9 asked him uh, why the effects looked odd when compared to the sort of like ultra realistic look that you see in a lot of superhero blockbuster stuff. And also I should say like in this very movie, like there's the opening moments where before it gets to the baby sequence where he runs from, I think it's central city to Gotham, which I thought looked really cool. Like the, the, um, the world like spinning past him and like uh, he's just running down the middle of a street. I thought like all of that stuff looked great. Um, so yeah, when you get to the chrono bowl at the end and like all of these, you know, uh, people spinning around and these faces that you recognize from DC era's past and all that kind of stuff. And it looks awful. Uh, basically IO9 asked like in a nice way, why did it look so different? Why did it look so bad? And he said, the idea of course is we're in the perspective of the flash. Everything is distorted in terms of lights and textures. We enter this quote unquote water world which is basically being in Barry's POV. It was part of the design. So if it looks a little weird to you, that was intended. And like, I'm sorry, man. I just, I don't know. I I don't want to call anybody a liar. And of course they had, you know, tons of conversations that we're not privy to. And, you know, maybe part of it was maybe their conversations. The intention was to make this more stylized than there was, and, and then it ultimately ended up being, and there was sort of a breakdown in communication between the visual effects vendors and and the filmmakers and whatever. But the end result does not reflect that quote, is what I'll say. So um, it's bad looking, and I genuinely believe this is a nonsense answer. I think Muschietti's being a good soldier. I think that Muschietti walked into a situation of a movie that's been embattled for so long has had so many different directors, so many different creatives. I genuinely think he said, this is a paying job with a major company and a major release. I'm going to be the good soldier. I'm going to get the job done. I'm going to get done on time, on budget, smile and grit my teeth through the press and get what I want next, which in this case seems to be Batman and Brave and the Bold, mm-hmm. which is, you know, his from the ground up. It's not, it's not like the Flash where he jumped in as like the 12th filmmaker attached to it in a decade. I genuinely believe that Muschietti does not believe a second of this, that he knows it looks bad, that he wishes it looked better, and he's um, 
helping cover his ass and cover the studio's ass to the best of his abilities because he wants to keep working, which is a feeling I understand all too well, Andy Muschietti. I kind of respect it. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you about the Nicolas Cage Superman thing, Jacob, because that's like, you know, one of the big talking points coming out of this movie. Um, and, I, you know, we know about that story. You probably saw that Kevin Smith uh, DVD that was making the rounds, you know, in the early 2000s or whatever, uh, where he tells that long extended story about um, trying to make Superman lives, I think was the name of the movie where uh, Nicolas Cage was going to play Superman and John Peters was the producer and Peters wanted this, uh, wanted Superman or yeah, wanted Superman to fight this giant spider. And that ended up not making it into the movie because the movie never happened. And then Peters ultimately got that into Wild Wild West instead. So like all of this is sort of background for this moment where it just, the movie, the flash cuts to Nicolas Cage as Superman and, and he's fighting a giant spider and he kind of like turns and looks at the camera and it's what, like 10 or 15 seconds of footage or something. And then that's it. And you kind of like never really uh, see it again. And it doesn't really even look like Nicolas Cage did anything for the movie. It just kind of looks like they got an AI version of Nicolas Cage or something. Um, so what did you think about the inclusion of that moment, which has never actually been, maybe it was referenced in like, a comic, like a, an Elseworlds comic or something like that. But it's never really been part of like the D- the established DC canon or DC lore because it's a story that never happened. So what did you think about like the this movie literalizing that thing, that what if world that never happened and then like how people might or might not react to that? Look, as somebody who has been obsessed with movies my entire life, who's followed movie news for long before I was involved in this as a profession, I've, I'm incredibly aware of Superman Lives, Tim Burton, Nicolas Cage, John Peters, Kevin Smith, and the Giant Spider. It's a story that's baked into my blood. And the moment I heard this was happening in this movie, it pinged immediately. Oh, yeah, that is a story that makes sense to me as a, as a dork. Um, but I will say that you could, you could feel the palpable confusion in the theater when I saw this. My wife was <laughs> baffled. She's like, why was Nicolas Cage in that movie? It's a case of a deep cut that I think is too deep. The movie the movie lingers way too long on this, especially after breaking out, you know, talk. we can talk about this as well, like breaking out recreations of Christopher Reeve and Adam West and other various different, you know, DC characters to then cut to one who that never, as you said, never actually happened. Uh, even if it did in an alternate world, which is, you know, the suggestion here, uh, it feels weird and wrong. And I think it's such a funny gag. I, I, I like it in a, in, in a vacuum. I think it's a very, very funny scene and such a uh, delightful meta touch to, to bring back that and include the spider. It's just, um, it's a joke made for about 2% of the people who would have, who would have saw this movie. And yeah. I, I don't think it connects in the way they wanted to. I, I think that they way overestimated how people were, would, would have known or remembered that Nicolas Cage almost played Superman in the nineties. And, it's really the, one of the big problems with The Flash, which is that it thinks it's giving the audience what they want, whereas Spider-Verse did it all a lot better, at least on a multiverse level. I think that if The Flash remained a smaller character comedy uh, that costs half as much, you know, all power do it. I, I, I want to see that version. I think The Flash stumbles um, when it tries to deliver all this fan service, but not understanding that, you know, this isn't Marvel, where uh, Marvel's fan service has grown to the point or a casual Marvel fan can recognize an Easter egg or an in-joke or a reference or a cameo because they've seen the Marvel movies. They've seen, they saw Guardians of the Galaxy, so when a character pops up in Thor uh, 4, like, oh yeah, okay, I know who that is. That makes sense. Ha ha ha. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, this is a joke made for a 
about 14 people and half those people work for Sashem.com. So <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. I agree with that. That's, that's, that's also well said. Um, you, I don't really want to belabor this point much, but, um, Muscadia also like before the movie was talking about, uh, other characters that they, uh, other cameos that they had intended to put into the movie that they ended up having to leave on the cutting room floor. So I'll just leave that as a tease and, and put that link in the show notes and you can check that out if you want to know like what other characters almost made it into the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just curious, Jacob, as we sort of approach the end of this episode of the podcast, are there any lessons that you think James Gunn and Peter Safran, the new co-heads of DC, can take from The Flash when crafting the future of the DCU, this, this new reboot that they're working on? I think James Gunn understands this and he's the things he's already discussed while pitching his vision for the DCU when they first announced it. And that is that uh, character and story, character and story, character and story, character and story. Do Why was the MCU a success, Ben? The answer is not connecting the universe. It was people liked Tony Stark and were invested in how Rob Dunn Jr. played him and how he was written. Yeah, That's it. The MCU is built entirely on a character on a journey that people liked. And if James Gunn can do, can do it with Superman, with whoever he casts as a new Superman, I think that's the, the first building block you got to have, which is people will maybe, their ears will perk up when they hear Michael Keaton's Batman, but are they going to go see Ezra Miller's The Flash on opening weekend? Not necessarily. Uh, character story, character story, character story, character story. And I know that uh, James Gunn did some not-so-subtle swipes at some of the competition in his early statements talking about how on his watch, the new DC universe will value screenwriters and value stories and never go into production without a finished script, which is something that, you know, most movies of this size don't have when they start rolling, mm-hmm. especially Marvel movies and the flash, which went through, you know, dozens of iterations, you know, clearly was a huge mess by this point. Yeah. So I think James Gunn knows what he knows. I, I don't think, I don't think James Gunn, um, James Gunn is, I know he said he loves the flash, I don't think he loves the Flash, Ben. I think I think he probably I think I think James Gunn probably likes the Flash. I think he likes it in the same way you and I like it. Um, yeah. But I, I there's no way he watched the movie and said, "Yeah, that's what I'm shooting for." Not the guy. Not the guy who made Guardians movies and the Suicide Squad, which are really sound stories full of character arcs that make sense and satisfying payoffs. So, um, you know, that's 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 where I am. Uh, I think James Gunn. I think James Gunn. Look, a lot of things you always hear is how when when a video game is, is released broken. Um, everybody always says things like, man, how could the developers release this broken video game? How could they release it when this graphic is so bad or these textures are bad or the control doesn't work? The answer is that the developers know it's broken. They know it's busted. They know more than you. They they, they know everything is wrong with that game. And, and and the same applies to movies. I mean, James Gunn knows the, that The Flash had problems. He knows it's been you know over 10 years struggling to come to life. He's incredibly aware, more so than you and I, of everything that went wrong uh, with the 58,000 cooks, you know, trying to direct the direction of that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that um, once again, I ramble, but once again, I'll come down to one statement, which is character story, character story, character story. Yeah. I, I wonder if you think that this might be the end of the, like, in, in comic book movies, the sort of nostalgia baiting of, like, the stunt casting kind of thing of, like, oh, we're bringing back this beloved character from 35 years ago or whatever. Do you think that, like, you know, we always talk about like Hollywood taking lessons from certain things and often they take the wrong lessons. I'm wondering if one of the lessons that Hollywood might take from this is like, oh, maybe people didn't care about Michael Keaton's Batman as much as we thought. And maybe we shouldn't have 
I mean, they were in a tough position. Warner Brothers was in a tough position with this movie because he, because of the whole Ezra Miller scenario off screen that like they had a, a tough situation where they kind of had to foreground Michael Keaton a little bit, maybe even more so than they would have otherwise um, because of that. So to try to sort of divert uh, attention a little bit. But I'm wondering if you think like people might say, you know what, let's think twice before bringing back, you know, beloved characters from or, or actors playing characters from all this time, you know, all, all these years ago. Do you think this is the the kind of like, if not the end, then like the beginning of the end of that? I think so, and I hope so. I mean, look, I, I had a kick, I had a, I had a great time watching Malkin's Batman. I grew up on his movies. I love the idea of him playing, you know, an older Batman Beyond style Batman. I think it works conceptually. I, I truly, honestly do. Um, but it can't be a crutch anymore. It can't be what we rely on anymore. I think we, we're absolutely past the point of this being a draw. I think, I think audiences, hopefully, are tapped out nostalgia. I, th- I mm-hmm. think that. You know, this it's, it's we've been nostalgia bound for decades now, and I once again, I think people are excited for new things. Spider Verse and John Wick are new things; they're things that didn't exist ten years ago, and people are generally excited about them. And they're the ones that people and they're the movies people are talking about and thinking about and seeing over and over again. And yeah, um, God, Ben, John Wick Four is going to make more money than The Flash, and I think that says a lot about how people feel about nostalgia versus something that's fresh, unique, and fun. It does. And I just want to say, like, you know, we've been kind of down on on the movie a little bit as we talked about it. I mean, you and I, like you said, we both liked it. Um, one thing I will say, just to end, uh, that I really appreciated about the movie is that it did not, it, it kind of felt like a single story was being told. I think the, the script here, which I think uh, Christina Hodson and uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein and Joby Harold wrote, um, they really put like, let's tell our story first instead of let's link this to a billion other things. I mean, yes, you had the Michael Keaton of it. You had the Zod of it, all of that. But it really did feel to me like a a singular story of like, okay, th- this has a beginning, a middle and end, recognizable arcs and things like that that seem like basic storytelling things, building blocks, but so many movies over the past several years have kind of forgotten certain parts of that when it's like, okay, let's just pass the baton on to the next story to really like continue and give you like the catharsis that you want at the end of a story. Um, So I just want to give the film props for, I think, you know, at least doing like the bare minimum, uh, the basics, which, uh, you know, take that as you will. But um, that stuck out to me as like Uh, one positive thing. So Ben, did you see the D and D movie honor among thieves? I did, yeah. Do you agree with me when, when I say that screenplay feels like it was finished and airtight before they filmed? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yes, I think that's going to be the secret here is follow that lead. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. That would be, like, God, Jacob, the, the quality of our blockbuster movies would go up exponentially if people took that that lesson from that movie, which I really hope they do. Um, I'm not convinced that they will just because it seems actually hard to do. And uh, it's much easier to just plant a flag on a release date and say like, all right, we're, we're putting something out on this date, no matter what, and then just kind of scramble your way there. But uh, if, if people had a little bit more time and the, you know, the, the right um, chemistry and the right talent comes together to pull something together, that, that is definitely the way, the ideal way to do it. And sort of like a best case scenario for what we can expect from modern blockbusters in, in 2023, I think. So um, yeah, fingers crossed people learn that lesson from that film. Um, Jacob, where can people find you online? Uh, slash film.com behind if, if 
something's on that site, I gave it approval at some point. So come blame me or yell at me if you don't like it or shout about how much you like me elsewhere. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You can find my stuff at slashfilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And that's going to do it for today's episode. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. The SlashFilm show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you later on.